This is the story of Corny. O'Donoghue. The last Irishman in the NFL. In the, at the 28th point. Brought to you by Go Loud. The kick is good. Episode 2. Second quarter. The draft. It's 28 to 21. Plenty of time to go in the quarter. First of all, you got to understand how his journey actually came about. He, he came to America initially to play small college soccer. This is Jeff Reinbold, a pro football coach and host of the Jeff Reinbold Show. Not very many people at the games, you know, family and friends, um, not, a high, not a lot of pressure. But he was such an outstanding specimen. I mean, he's the tallest kicker ever to play in the National Football League at 6'6". And so he had such a big leg. And now you're talking about a completely different world. I remember my first night in New York, you know, I was on a student visa. And they give you one night in a hotel in New York to give you an orientation. You can fly over there, you're supposed to go to school and all that, blah, blah. And um, I've never been in a hotel, man. I'm on the about the sixth, seventh floor. And I look out, man, bars in the window. It was just, it was too big for me. You know, it was just too big. I was, I was scared. I was like, wow, you know, how am I going to survive here, you know? I had one night, one way taken, probably about 100 bucks in my pocket. And that was it. But I had one phone number of a guy that lived up the street from me. Called him and he was there. So, you know, he, had a, he, had, he was staying at his uncle's place, put me up there, uh, worked for a little bit in New York, and then I flew down to uh, Birmingham. And I remember getting out the plane in Birmingham, and it had to be 200 degrees. You know, it's like, how do people play soccer in this place, you know? And I was in Birmingham for a few days. I remember walking around, walking around Birmingham, you know, and this is in the 70s, 72. I mean, it was my first interaction with, with black people. Because back then, the only people who were in Ireland that was probably, you know, were, were medical students or something. So it was like a total education for me. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. This is Corny's brother, Coley O'Donoghue. You know, in a way, if you think about it as a young fellow, I mean, he was straight out of school, going into a completely different environment, coming from the safety of our little estate and all his friends, literally 20 friends right outside your front door, to going into a pretty unique environment, which became a high-pressuredized environment, and to be able to adapt so quickly to that, incredible. I remember going, went up to where I went to school, St. Bernard College, and it was a nice little campus. You know, there was dorms there for the athletes. You know, you'd have basketball players, soccer players, baseball players. We all lived together. But you'd have, you know, the black people were on the ground floor and we were on the second floor. And I honestly met some of the greatest people, black people, real people in my life. When somebody goes out and begins to loot and burn a building down, which endangers the health and safety of everybody, 
Uh, if you let the police knock somebody in the head who was breaking a plate glass window, or uh, who was assaulting a policeman, who was assaulting a, uh, a person on the street, or uh, throwing a firebomb, I think they'd be getting out mighty light if somebody knocked them in the head. George Wallace, you know, was the governor back then and very, uh, you know, anti-black and all that. So they couldn't basically go off to campus. They had to stay on the campus, you know, because it was totally a white town. But, uh, you know, it's it's all changing, but it, it's, it was an education. It's not a matter of race. It's a matter of anarchists, and the government has kowtowed to every anarchist group in the United States, and as a consequence, we don't have any safety in the streets of our large cities nor right here in Washington, D.C. I remember the first day we went out to the field. Beautiful pitch there. And I remember I'd, I'd arrived, and we were kind of kicking the ball around, you know, beforehand. You know, it's just like every, all the guys were getting together, just meeting everybody, you know. And it was guys from, a lot of guys from New York, guys from New Jersey, guys from, you know, Africa, you know, guys from all of the East Coast. And I remember kicking the ball around, and, these guys are coming up and introduce themselves, you know, I said, oh yeah, I'm, I was all state or all city, all this and all that, you know. I said, God, I don't even know I'm going to make this fucking team. He's got all these awards and all that shit, you know. So I remember when the training started, you know, I was a little intimidated, but when I saw, you know, I was so far ahead of them, like, you know, they were good players, but they were very cocky. In American sports, generally, you stay in your lane. Whereas Neil would be curious about who's in the championship this year in Gaelic. I mean, we'd have those kind of conversations, or he'd be still following the old first division of the premiership. So I think, you know, like a bit like Dad, they had this very wide range of interests. So I think he was able to jump out of the lane, and I think he was learning by looking at other sports as well. You know, if your kid plays a sport, everybody gets a medal. You know, everybody gets a trophy, a participation trophy. You know? <laughs> so, so unless you won in Ireland, you didn't get nothing, you know. So it, I found that they taught very well themselves. You know, in Ireland, we're kind of, we're always putting ourselves down a little. We slag ourselves, you know. But, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time with them when, like, say, the Christmas came or our summer came, you know, they'd drive up, they'd put me up for a couple of weeks, I'd find a place to work for the summer, you know. So, some great memories and great people. I remember coming back after the first year, I think I had some homesickness, you know, so it was a fight to go back, you know, and I worked at, it was a jam factory. You know, I worked there and I said, I was making, I was looking, I was making maybe what now is the time, you know, 10 pounds a week again. And I said, no, I got an opportunity. So I went back. So once, so once I'm back the second time, you know, I I came home the summer. I, there was no turning back then, you know. My brother Cody was over with me. And he was more of a rugby type player. You didn't want to mess with Cody. I was more kind of finessed, blah, blah, blah. But he could run all day, you know, run, run, run. We would knock heads a few times, but the old saying goes, if someone was picking on me or someone was picking on him, we were together, you know, that was the way it was, you know. I always wanted to have him on my team. It was very difficult for us to play 
and even on the street, against each other, we would end up in the fight. It would end up in the brawl, no question about it, you know, because we're that competitive, you know. <laughs> it's just normal older brother, younger brother, you know, but he'd, he'd do anything for me. Neil and I would hook up. I had a few summers, and his first when he came out of school, I think I'd been working in London, 72, and he came over and we had a great bit of crack. So, yeah, look, we were we were thrilled. The whole community was thrilled for him. I was just disappointed that we wouldn't get to see him as often as we wanted to, you know, but enjoyed it and indulged it. I remember when uh, Coley was coming back down to Alabama with me during the summer, and a buddy who I had, a um, good friend of mine, Tom, Tom Gorman, I call him Texas Tom. Anyway, his dad lived in Huntsville, and he needed a 1968 Dodge Challenger driven back, stick ship red, driven back to Alabama. So I remember Coley and myself looking at each other, we'll do it, <laughs> you know, driving this Challenger, you know, I mean, like a V8 Challenger, like nothing like it was ever seen, you know, and it was like the trip to heaven. It was like, you know, interstate, stopping off places. And we finally arrived and uh, it took us about a week to get back. So we're having so much fun, you know. <laughs> I never really saw Neil get angry. I never saw him. I would. Like, I, you know, I got a good belt off someone, even in my later playing days, you know, not as, a, as an adult different person on the pitch could never explain it calm as anything off it but just very determined but yeah when it's done it's done I could take that be pissed off but I could take it but Neil just very even minded very even level headed I met a lot of great people at St. Bernard played there for three years I made All-American my second year and I wasn't on a full scholarship until the second year and when I made All-American I had some calls coming from bigger schools like Notre Dame and, you know, a lot of the big schools in North Carolina and that. And I was working on, you know, I had to work to put things together for the first year. Yeah, I was washing trucks. They got pretty cold in Alabama, you know, in the wintertime. And I remember being up washing the trucks and it's freezing cold. And, uh, and my coach shows up. He says, why am I getting all these calls from coaches? you know, all over the country that uh, you say you're looking for a scholarship. I said, well, probably because I'm up in this truck, you know, wiping all this shit off with acid. My hands have gone and, and uh, he says, all right, you got a full scholarship. So uh, that was it. I mean, I was walking there three miles there and three miles back every day. And, uh, but that was what you did, you know, you did survive. But, uh, and then after the third year, I think, what happened was the price of gas went up. We have at present an absolute shortage of natural gas. This situation is destined to continue indefinitely. And by indefinitely, I mean not only just the next few years, but as far ahead as we can see. Everywhere we went, we were going in cars. We drive to Florida, we drive to North Carolina, we drive to wherever. So they had to make a choice whether to cut you know, the soccer program or the basketball program. Well, the basketball program was people understood basketball in Alabama more than soccer, even though we're successful. But the guys have been telling me, man, you should try this this kicking. He says, you'd be, you'd be good at it. The only football I'd really seen was uh, on TV. 
So I, I, I worked at it for probably about six months, six, seven months every day, every day. If you had time to think about it, you probably wouldn't be second thoughts. But what, what are my options? You know, what's the options? I'm back to the corner. I mean, uh, they're not, I can get a scholarship here, but I'm not, I can't play soccer. I'd be doing nothing. Or I can go down here and do, you know, play football and try that. So I said, hell, and I'll try, I, I'll give it a go, give it a lash. The first football game I actually ever went to was in Birmingham and was Auburn playing Alabama. There's 100,000 people there. The year after that, I played in that game in the same venue. He had that um, incredible ability to adapt. Even when the times got rough when in the kicking, he, he was able, he'd, he would never get on the phone and start moaning or, you know, just get on there. I'm just going to do something else. Maybe this is the end of it. And then somebody else would come in and say, yeah, come down and play for us. And he'd be off again and we'd all be off again. You know, it was just like following the circus, you know. But I don't think it was ever on his agenda. And suddenly he heard about this opportunity to try out and Orban phoned him and said, come down for a weekend and try the kicking. And uh, Coach Jordan at the time, I think, took him in. And so they did it as a standard test. They put, you know, balls on 25, 35 from different angles and, you know, around the pitch. And I think there was 10 different balls on t- sitting on tees. And I'm not mis- if I'm not mistaken, he kicked every one of them. And Jordan was in his office looking down and says, who's this lanky kid, you know? Let's have a bit of pin, you know? So they come down and more or less offered them, offered them the contract. He increased his scholarship and he moved to Ormond. And he had the last two seasons in collegiate playing football instead of soccer. So he had two years of soccer, two years of football. Auburn was a huge school, massive. It was a different league than the soccer as far as the workouts, the stadiums, the, you know, it was, it was big time. You know, first I went in the weight room with the guys who had that off-season program. And these guys are pumping like 275, whatever, you know. And I had never benched left in my life. And I go on there, man, I could barely push the bar up. It's just a totally different way, you know. I met some great people there, too. I mean, in, in my room, we had a quad. And it was one guy was professional in the NBA. Actually, I roomed with Chris Evans' brother, Drew Everett. He had a tennis scholarship there. Harvey Glass, world record holder in uh, the 60-yard dash. He had a world record in the relay in the Olympic medal. So I was around these people, you know, who were God-given talent. It's, it's nothing else. You watch him in awe, you know, especially in the pro level. Donico D, I don't know if you know Donico D. Donico D swam for Ireland in the Olympics. And I've become friends with him uh, through mutual friends. But his job as a professional gambler, I, I usually, usually, every time with me, I said, Any good days, Donico? And he said, Oh, disaster. He says it. He said, I have a, lots of friends in America through the poker. And he said, I had this call. He didn't know about Neil. And he says, you, you've been to America, haven't you? And he said, what do you think about American football? I, I didn't know where this was going, but I thought it was too soon to put it on the table, you know? And he says, um, 
I said, I'm making the terrible mistake. He said, I, this friend rang me and he said this, Auburn are playing Alabama. And I go, oh, go, this is going to be really good. Good. And I still didn't say anything. And he said he was trying to persuade me to bet on Auburn to win. They hadn't won two previous years. He said, Auburn are going to win this year. And go for it. He says, they're, they're hot, you know. Yeah. No, 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 no. So this game is about two weeks away. He calls him again in a week. He says, you get that on on Auburn? It's they're, they're, the prices actually got improved. I uh, don't think I said, no, I don't bet on things. I don't know that's in the bag, so you know. It's like, I kept chipping away. And two days before he got to me, he said, okay. So he did a big bit of research. And uh, he didn't like what he was reading. So he said, sure, who the, who the hell am I going to talk to in Ireland? He actually says to me, who the hell am I going to talk to about Auburn in Alabama and Ireland? And I'm sitting opposite him, you know? I mean, what do I know about this? I just still let him go. And I said, who did you bet on? He said, he said I went for Alabama or they were a better price. They lost. Auburn won. How about a way to end the game? And they got another big one over their arch rival from Tusco themselves. And I said, you could have asked me about it. He said, what? And I said, my brother played for Auburn. He was at the game. And he said, if you'd called me, I would have stirred you, at least given you something else to add into the equation. And he's just banging his head on the table. I mean, he had gone in big, like, you know, it's like big money. He said, that was a great lesson for me. Auburn wins it, 48 to 45. My name is Ty Gleeder. I'm from Galway City in the west of Ireland. And as a rugby player, I was average but my kicking was above average. Started kicking American footballs in COVID just for a bit of fun. And then that led to things moving pretty fast. I went from not having a clue what I was doing, just kicking the ball for a crack to all of a sudden, you know, working with an NFL expert. And um, But that led to me playing in um, the European League. I just started. So I got fortunate there, packed my bags, moved to Poland, got a bit of experience there. And then that led to me kind of getting my big shot, which was in the CFL, the Canadian Football League. So it's one level beneath the NFL. And that, that led to me recognising, look, I think my journey here is going to come to an end. I was had done everything I could, so I was at peace with that idea and then turning over a new leaf and actually trying to, you know, the path that I had just somewhat created or at least walked in my shoes, that I, that can be a benefit to hundreds of more of Irish lads in the years to come by getting them opportunities and getting them scholarships to play college football. So that is how Leader Kicking was born and that's what I do today. Kickers have to be extremely mentally strong and mentally prepared. That's really what separates the best. It's different mentality. Soccer, we're more, you know, we're thinking about, oh, we're here ideas. Uh, football is very set, set plays. You get, you know, you get maybe 30 plays and you go and play those and that. My part was very easy. You know, when they, when they screwed up, you went on there and tried to bail them out with three points. That's the way I looked at it. I had some good days and I had some not so good days. But as a kicker, it's a fine line. You either make it or you miss it. There's no gray area there. You know, I mean, the good days where you make it, the bad days when you miss it. So hopefully you make the big ones and get a chance to come out the next week because kickers are easy to replace. You know, if you miss a couple, boom, you're gone. I had one coach, you know, he was asked about kickers and he's replied with kickers like grass are everywhere. There's so many people that can walk out and be in the U.S. an indoor dome and bang a 60-yard field goal. 
there's a lot of people out there can do it but the ones that get the opportunities and the ones that, that survive and get a crack at the pro ranks their mentality and, and how they prepare themselves to go and that's not easy I know so many players that really couldn't flip flip that switch and, and couldn't get themselves to that space where they just felt ready and just felt like they could own the moment that was about to occur in front of them um, but as I often say to guys I coach yeah sometimes it can be quite vulnerable but that's where amazing opportunities can occur and you must be willing to be, feel vulnerable be vulnerable to then experience that growth and for any man to be a top level kicker at college or in the pro ranks mentally you must be very capable and be willing to keep developing and learning that side of the game Just a technical point of view if you go back to the Orban trial and the kick and of course there's nobody in front of you so the ball's on the tee it's a bit like a rugby and he's taking five or six steps and he's chipping it over like a good nine iron shot it's, it's, it's no pressure it's need a big swing there's nothing coached about that it's just complete natural flow but then of course when you say hang on the ball is not going to be there when you're started the ball's going to be in somebody else's hand and it's going to come back and it's going to be put on this and the defensive team is going to have all their biggest guys and they're going to be jumping on they're only 10 yards from you when they're jumping for a block they're probably jumping to 12 feet or something I don't know their arms are at 12 feet high or something you know so I mean they call them the the sidewinder which to us like was ridiculous because everybody more or less kicked with their toe when you just basically hope for the best there wasn't any of this stumbling around and all the fidgety techniques and doing all the business you know so but not even in Neil's time but Neil had this stuff lovely fluid like a golf swing shot you know I mean he was reconstructed so I think by the time he got to that stage he had got it he had nailed that sort of fluidity even under the pressure once I made that commitment to doing it the goal was to make the pros you know whether that was going to be a second round draft choice or the 10th rounds my vision was if I got in there I believed in my abilities you know to get the job done but it wasn't like today I'd gone back to uh, Alabama to St. Bernard for about six months to just kick every day every day every day just work at it work at it work at it and uh, when draft day came you get a phone call so I didn't get drafted on the first day, which means it wasn't the first three rounds. So you kind of, okay, okay, still got a shot, you know. And then he got drafted quite high, which was a surprise, you know, very pleasant surprise. But then there was the opportunity to go and play pro ball. After my first year, I actually got All-American. And that opens doors to you. You're on the radar for maybe the pro teams and that. I got the draft worked out and I was drafted in the fifth round, Buffalo Bills. To get picked at all is an incredible feat. And to be a kicker and be picked in the draft is, you know, the way personnel people like to look at kickers and punters is you find them on the street. You know, you work them out, you sign them as free agents. You don't you don't use draft picks that you would normally reserve for quarterbacks and pass rushers and corners and all those other positions on the field. So obviously, you know, people fell in love with the fact that he had such a powerful leg, that he was such a good athlete. There's, here's a guy that, you know, was an elite athlete in a number of sports. 
O.J. Simpson is purely the best offensive running back that I've ever seen. The man has everything. He makes three moves before he gets the football down, and he has good power, a good acceleration, changes speed without losing speed. Just an amazing football player. I love to see him reach that 10,000-yard mark. He was really getting exposure to that sort of real celebrity world of sporting celebs up close and not necessarily comfortable, but he was decent. OJ was decent to him. You know, it treated him probably like the rookie kid he was, but he just basically ran the changing room, you know. When you, you walk in the locker room and you have all these, you know, players as you've seen on TV playing professional, you know, and they're all studs basically, you know, and you're the kicker, like... <laughs> You're the oddball, you know. That's when you knew you'd arrived. That's when the pressure came, you know. You figured, okay, okay, you'd be kicking, you'd be kicking at Auburn, you'd be kicking, you know, in the backyard and all that. Now, now you got to go out there and earn your keep. That was the days of the juice, right? And they called their offense the electric company because they're going to turn on the juice. And he had not only OJ Simpson, but you had, uh, you know, Great offensive lineman, Reggie McKenzie. Joe DeLamalure was an offensive lineman. It was a great – they had a tremendous football team. And Joe Ferguson was the quarterback. They, I mean, they were a good, good football team. The Bills were a, a Super Bowl contender. And, you know, O.J. rushed for 2,000 yards in a season. But the reality of a kicker's life is different. And when you go to from Auburn, Alabama, in the south part of Alabama – and great weather to kick in, and great conditions to kick in. And then all of a sudden, you're drafted by the Buffalo Bills, and you're on the shores of Lake Erie, and it's windy, and it's cold, and it's snowing, and all of those things. It's a, it's a tough place to kick. Moving from what he thought was collegiate sport into the professional world, you're just a different mindset completely, you know? And I don't think Neil got there yet in his head. And then as he was in Buffalo, he'd be sitting under a blanket in snow two foot high and come on and do your thing, you know? Tough. So I think he criticizes himself around that issue, but like it's understandable, you know, coming from where he was. The pressure around taking a kick in rugby versus taking a kick in American football, very different. Um, and that's something I had to adjust to. And what I mean by that is in, in rugby, we, we take a kick, say we miss you still have ample opportunity to still influence the game and still leave the, the pitch with people thinking, yeah, you performed well, you know, because we have so many op- opportunities in the game to run, to tackle, to pass, to kick in play. Um, whereas, as I found when I moved to American football, I get a shot, I get a field goal. I might only get one or two more opportunities in the entire game. So I'm leaving the game only having had three opportunities to influence the game. Whereas in rugby, I could have had, you know, as a fly half, you could have 70 plus. I had a slow start at the Bills. I remember the coaches, Jim Ringo. He was the head coach at Buffalo. And I remember, I think it was before the first game, he's giving his pep talk. There was nobody sitting in the front three rows. I said, well, you know, I don't want to be the only one sitting up front, you know. You know, sit in the back. So I said, all right, sit in the back. Natural about he gets out of the speech and he's talking, it's getting outer and outer, and then chairs starting to fly everywhere, you know. So now I understand why everybody's sitting in the back row. It was like it was totally balls out, knock him down, kick him out, take no prisoners type of thing, you know. And I'm like, whoa, okay. 
And I remember I missed a kick against uh, somebody up there. And I had the lineman come over and give me, give me shit, you know, I'm getting my face in it. That never happened to me before. <laughs> and so now Neil O'Donohue comes into the game. O'Donohue joined the team late in a contract holdout. So you, you learn it's a different game. You know, you're playing for your life, you're playing for your money, and they're relying on you to produce. Got that one. They got that one indeed from 30 yards out. And actually, I kicked the winning field goal. I think it was against Atlanta that year. O'Donohue puts the first points of the game on the board. And I got let go the next day. God. You know, it didn't work out there, but then he had an opportunity to go to Tampa Bay. And his two years in Tampa Bay, I think, brought him back to being a legitimate, you know, NFL kicker. Next time on Corny, the last Irishman in the NFL. I can remember Coach Hannafin. He sent one of the guys home with me to put me on suicide and watch. Neil was getting booed. The fans wanted a new kicker. Watch Donnie. He touched his kick the ball. He thought he was back in soccer for a minute. He would take me after a miss, put his arm around me and say, Neil, you're my man. No one ever did that to me before. If you don't have processes, you, know, you don't have a ways to rebound, it can be really challenging and you can sink deeper. And sometimes there's no coming back from that. Corny is brought to you by Go Loud. Produced and edited by Lachlan Hart with additional recordings by Michael McQuaid of Pro Football Ireland. Like, follow or subscribe to Corny on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts.